As we get started, I want to play a little word association with you. You think with me here this morning, would you? What word comes to your mind when I say, what does Wells Fargo and Pinkerton have in common to banks? Or what does ADT and Denver burglar alarms have to homes? Or what does the FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and blue chip companies, what do they have in common to investments? Or what does life and disability insurance have in common with your family? Or what do airbags and anti-lock brakes have in common to your car? Hopefully, you've been thinking with me and you say, Hey, those all have something to do with security. Security of your home, security of your finances, security of your investments, security of of your car or whatever. Uh, And that's exactly the case. They all seek to provide security in different areas. God knows that we're an insecure people. God knows that we have insecurities, and wonderfully, he makes provision for them. The verse that we're looking at here this morning is one of the great New Testament texts dealing with our security in Christ. If you've been here in the last couple of months, we've been in a series on great New Testament texts. And we've looked at some of the verses that probably many of us know by heart or know from memory. This is certainly one of them. Romans 8, 28. If you would turn there. And I've entitled my message, God's Spiritual Security programs. As Christians, we can have unwavering confidence in the overruling providence of God. Unwavering confidence in the overruling providence of God. Notice he says, we know. There's some things that God wants us to know. He wants us to know that we have eternal life, but he wants us to know that we're secure in him. That's what he tells us right here in Romans 8:28. Let's read it together. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So we know that God intends for us to have complete confidence in him and in his provision. There's no aspect of our life that is outside the overruling providence of God. There's nothing in your life that escapes the notice of God or even the control of God, his loving control. So the key to interpreting Romans 8.28 are the two conditional clauses. Would you notice them with me? There are two conditional clauses in this verse. It says, to them that love God and to them who are the called according to his purpose. So who is he talking about? This is describing we can have this security. Those of us who love God, that's a a common Bible uh, description of those who are saved. Those of us who love God. The unsaved world doesn't love God. They don't even acknowledge God. So this verse is to those who love God, and he uses another term describing the same people, those who are called. In the Bible, in the New Testament particularly, he often, Paul, John, others use the term called or the elect to describe those of us who've been called by God and we've been saved. 
He's describing here in verse 28, save people. People who've been born again. Those who love God. So those who love God have some bedrock assurances, some Bible security that God is going to be with us from start all the way to the finish. God's spiritual security plan. Let's break down verse 28 into three main ideas. First of all, God's plan is positive. For good, it says. Now, sometimes people in the church, and especially people outside of Christianity, outside of the church, think that, you know, God's picture of mankind is kind of negative, and everything in the Bible is kind of a big negative. Don't do this. Don't go there. Can't go in this direction. There's a lot of negatives. No doubt, the Bible forbids us about certain things. But we need to recognize that God is for us, and, and the Bible is a positive book, and the Christian life is a positive way to live life. That's what he's saying here. God's plan is positive. It is for our good. And we might stop and say, wait a minute. Wait a minute, God. Wait a minute, preacher. I've been through some tragedy. Can tragedy be good? Can ill health, I've got a nagging health problem. Matter of fact, it's probably going to kill me at some point. Can ill health be good? Is bereavement good? We could go on and, and add to that. Is frustration good? Is financial collapse, is that good? Is that what God is saying? There are people here today who came to Jesus Christ as their personal Savior because of a bankruptcy, because of a divorce, because of a drug or alcohol overdose. Those are the things that God used, the external things that God used to bring those people to faith in Jesus Christ. His providence may appear sometimes like it's disastrous when viewed from a materialistic or temporal viewpoint. It may appear disastrous. But the good that's talking about right here in verse 8, 28, the good that God promises is spiritual good. He's not talking about temporal good or materialistic good. That may be an outgrowth of that, but he's talking about that which is for our spiritual good. And the heart that loves God is able to discern that he is busily at work in our lives, even in the most heartbreaking and unwelcome circumstances of life. A heart that loves God says, God, I don't understand this. This is probably not what I would have written for my life. But Lord, I trust you enough that I believe that you're going to use this for my spiritual good. My spiritual good. It took years before the strange providences or calamities in Job's life. Remember Job, the richest man in the East? Large family, owned more camels and donkeys and, and servants than anybody alive on earth. Preceded Abraham by probably 500 years. The greatest man of the East, he was called. It took years before the strange providence and calamities in Job's life were vindicated. But he voiced his faith. He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Job had lost it all at that point. 
And Job never realized, probably until he got to heaven, that it all started, it was all precipitated by a discussion between Satan and God when Satan says, well, the only reason he serves you is because you've blessed him so much financially and and physically. And God says, no, you got it wrong. He is a man of integrity. And Satan says, well, let me take everything away from him. He'll curse you to your face, God. And God says, Take it away from him. Then Satan comes back and says, okay, I took everything away. He hasn't cursed you, but let me destroy his health. And then he'll curse you. He destroyed his health. He never cursed him. He said, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gave, the Lord taketh away. So Job, even in his calamities, and he suffered probably like no other man outside of Jesus Christ with his suffering and his loss, But he still said, I cling to God. I know he has good. And God did bring good out of that. The book of Job has ministered to hundreds of thousands. We would probably say millions of Christians down through the last 4,000 years. So good did come out of it. Job emerged from his trials enriched, not impoverished, Not in the spiritual realm either. He came out enriched spiritually as well as materially, not impoverished. Joseph, another great character in the Old Testament. We all know the story of Joseph. It's probably one of our favorite stories. Joseph was beloved by his father, Jacob, but he was despised by his brothers because they were jealous of him. And at one point, they were going to kill him. And then one of the brothers intercedes in his behalf and says, we don't want blood on our hands. Here comes a caravan. Let's sell him into slavery and they'll take him to Egypt. We'll never see him again. Never have to deal with him again. That's exactly what happened. He goes to Egypt and he's bought by Potiphar. He becomes the head of Potiphar's household. And Potiphar's wife has a strong lust for him. And she tries to get him to go to bed with her all the time. And finally, Joseph runs out of the house. She grabs his robe and she cries rape. He tried to rape me. Joseph goes to prison for 13 years as a young man on a trumped-up charge by a very jealous woman. But during that time, he understands that he has a gift from God, and he's able to interpret dreams and predict the future by God's grace. That makes its way all the way to Pharaoh, who's a young man. And Joseph becomes, the Bible says, as a father to Pharaoh. And he's over all of the land of Egypt, the greatest nation on earth at that time. And his brothers back in Israel are starving because of the worldwide famine. The brothers come down to buy grain in Egypt because there's an abundance because of Joseph's God-given wisdom. And he sells it to them and he recognizes them. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And after a couple of trips down to Egypt, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and they thought, it, it's, we're toast. It's over for us. We sold him into slavery. Now he's the most powerful man in all of Egypt and probably all of the world. We're history. And Joseph's theology was perfect. It was perfect Bible theology. He says this, When you sold me into slavery, you intended it for evil. But God used it for good. That is an illustration of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. 
some man, some woman, some individual it does something to a believer and they intend evil in their actions, but God uses it for good. God uses it for His glory and our good. Now, we tend to interpret good in terms of creature comforts, exemption from disease, money in the bank, success, pleasure, a lovely home, vacations by the sea, etc. That's what we, how we tend to interpret good. That's the good life. We tend to equate success and pleasure with goodness, but those are a million miles. Those are a million miles from what Paul is teaching in this passage here, in this very verse right here. God meant it for good. God's meaning of good means whatever makes us more like Christ. That's God's intention of good. Whatever God brings into my life, it may be painful, it may seem like I'm suffering loss, but if it makes me more like Christ, it's for my spiritual good. That's what he's talking about right here. So number one, God's plan is positive. He always has your good, your spiritual good in mind in whatever passes through his hand and comes into your life. He intends good out of no matter what evil may come to you from others or even bad choices that you make, he's still going to use it for your spiritual good. Number two, God's plan is active. Not only is it positive for good, but God's plan is active. Notice what it says. All things work together. There's work that's going on. And it's an interesting phrase here. Our English phrase, work together, is one word in the original language, in the Greek language. It is synergeo, where we get our word synergy or synergistically. That's the word right here. That's the root of this word. And that means synergism, this Greek word means the working together of various elements to produce an effect that is greater and often completely different than the sum of each element acting alone. I know that's kind of a long definition. Let me read it again. Synergism is the working together of various elements to produce an effect that is greater and often completely different than the sum of each of the elements acting separately. Ordinary table salt. It is a combination of two things that are poisonous. Two things that are poisonous. Sodium and chlorine. But they're bound together chemically and We wouldn't say necessarily they're good for us. Probably most of us have too much salt. But they're not harmful. They actually add flavor. They enhance the flavor of things. Sodium and chlorine bound together. So sometimes the Lord is working and he does his best work sometimes when we see it the least. We don't even recognize that he's working. On Sunday nights we've been studying in the group that's in in Fireside Chapel They've been studying the book of Ruth. I'm with another group. 
but they're studying the book of Ruth. And God is in the background, we would say, but he's working and bringing everything together, Boaz and Ruth and the promise of, and of course, David comes from that union and Jesus Christ comes later from that union. And it's all being done in the background. So I'm saying sometimes God is working them both when we see him the least. Don't become impatient with your circumstances. Don't become frustrated with your circumstances or what we might describe as sometimes the inactivity of God. Where is God? Where is God in my circumstances? He's promised me good, but that's not what I'm experiencing, it seems. Where is God? Well, don't get frustrated in what seeming inactivity of God. Often that is when we take things into our own hands and we push providence. And we make bad decisions. And we jump the tracks from the will of God and we crash. Notice this work requires cooperation. It says work together. God's good doesn't come into our life if we're resisting him, we're stiff-arming him in the difficult circumstances that we find ourselves in. We're throwing up our hands and we're giving up and we're calling it quit. That isn't working together with God. So that's why I'm saying God's plan is active. We work together. Life's events are not unrelated. They're orchestrated, not unrelated. They're orchestrated by God for the believer. You know, a physician's prescription may be a compound of several drugs. Taken in isolation, those drugs taken in isolation could be harmful. Matter of fact, they could even be fatal. But blended together under the skilled hand of a pharmacist, they can heal. God intermingles all things for good. We may think, this is painful. This is, this is sickening. This is hurtful. And God is blending those things together for good. So in times of severe trial, there is always the temptation to give mental assent to this truth, to this verse, but to feel that our circumstances are an exception. Well, yeah, God, I know the Bible says all things work together for good. That's for most people, or that's for a lot of times in my life, but that isn't true now. That's not what I'm experiencing now. I'm experiencing nothing but the dark side. Yeah, I think you've forgotten me, God. All things work together for good. The poet said it this way, not until each loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the pattern and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver for the pattern he has planned. Sometimes looking under the tapestry of life, we see all the dangling threads, the dark threads. But God is weaving away as the master weaver. Third, I see God's plan is inclusive. We're kind of taking this verse and backing it up. I talked about the two conditional phrases first, which is those that love God and those who are the called, the elect, the saved. And then we backed up and we looked at 
all things and then work together, or now we're going to talk about how we know and then all things. Let's look at this phrase, all things, a little bit more closely. God's plan is inclusive. God's plan is inclusive. That's why Paul says, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, all things. Now measure that for a moment. All things, everything in every sphere is under the beneficent control of God. Everything in every sphere is under the sovereign, loving control of God. The comprehensiveness of that statement is breathtaking. It's breathtaking. There are no qualifications in this verse. Well, except for there are no qualifications, there are no restrictions, there are no conditions in this verse. The Bible says if you're a Christian, you love God, all things, all things, all things work together for good. No exceptions, no qualifications, no restrictions, no conditions. Death of a spouse. Disease in a young child's life. I know there's some people here today that have been through that. Death of a spouse, disease in the child's life, divorce from a partner. I know there's a number of people here that experience that. Loss of a position, the erosion of your reputation before friends and family, suffering, persecution. That's why he says, all things. All things. God does not keep his children from experiencing things that harm them. He doesn't keep his children from experiencing things that harm them, but the Lord takes all that he allows to happen to his children and ultimately turn those things into blessings. One of the classic examples of that in my mind today, still alive today, is Johnny Erickson Tata. How many of you know who I'm talking about? Johnny Erickson Tata. Do you realize Johnny Erickson Tata has a worldwide ministry? I'm talking about in dozens and dozens of countries around the world. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are both handicapped and non-handicapped have come to Jesus Christ through Johnny Erickson Tata's ministry. Johnny Erickson Tata... At 17 years of age, dove into a pool, not realizing that it was too shallow, dove into the pool and broke her neck at 17 years of age. She is a beautiful gal, beautiful lady. Broke her neck, and since she was 17, she has been a quadriplegic. She has been confined to a wheelchair. She can't comb her hair. She can't dress herself. She can't feed herself. She can't even go to the bathroom by herself. She can't move her arms. She can't move her legs. She can't move her body. She paints pictures. She puts a paintbrush in her mouth and paints. And she paints beautiful pictures. But her real ministry is telling her story. And she's really a very good theologian. I've read many things that she has written. She's a very good theologian, and she speaks to people all over the world. She has to be assisted in every aspect of her life. 
Johnny Erickson Tata said something that I heard that I wrote in my Bible. <laughs> she has lived it out, but it's true for all of us. She said this, get it. Sometimes God permits that which he hates to accomplish what he loves. She's saying, God doesn't love people breaking their neck. God doesn't love when some woman gets raped. God doesn't love when somebody gets cancer. No, we get that. But sometimes God in his beneficent love allows it to pass through his hand, some evil to pass through his hand and into your life or into my life. Sometimes God allows that which he hates. He's not the author of sin. The Bible makes that clear. But sometimes he allows that which he hates and he uses it because he's God. He uses it to accomplish that which he loves. And that's what he's done in Johnny Erickson Tata's life, and hopefully he's doing that in yours as well. The various circumstances that we go through, but when we work together, that's the key phrase I'm emphasizing right now. When we work together, God, I don't understand it, but I comply, I submit, I realize you are wise, and so I accept it. And I want you to get glory and use it for my spiritual good. Sometimes we are willing to admit that life as a whole is under God's providence. You know, the big things. Who gets elected president? <laughs> Don't get me started. Uh, or other big things. Who we marry. Or what we do for a living. You know, God's in control of the big thing, but every detail, come on. God isn't concerned with every little detail. Oh, yeah? Every little detail. Matter of fact, he tells us so. He said there's not a sparrow that falls to the ground without his knowledge of it. Now, you stop and think about it. How many sparrows fall to the ground every second in the world? It's a very common bird, a very small bird. Hundreds of thousands of sparrows fall to the ground, probably dead every minute, every moment in this world. But God is observing, directing every one of those things. Matter of fact, he says, he knows and he numbers. He doesn't just know them. He numbers the very hairs of your head. For some of you, that's not a big problem. You know, it's not a big issue. But the Bible is saying, what is it saying? It's saying God is into the detail. Sometimes you hear people say, well, the devil's in the details. No, God is in the details. God is in the details of every believer. He is in the details of your life. So when something happens, it isn't saying, you know, in glory, it's not, oops, whoa, didn't see that coming. God's not surprised by anything because he is into the details directing, controlling the details of your life. That's what the Bible tells us. Sometimes people talk, well, it was just luck. That was just chance. When we use the word chance, that we're really saying God's not in charge. That's really what we're saying. That was just chance. No, God's in charge and the Bible tells us God's in charge of every detail. That doesn't mean that we don't 
get out of the will of God because we make bad decisions. But God still takes those bad decisions and uses them for his glory if we will submit to him. He works together in our life to use them for his glory. There are no accidents. There are only incidents. Truth of this verse is wonderfully illustrated in the life of Jacob. I know I've referenced Job and Joseph, now Jacob from the Old Testament. And this truth is is wonderfully illustrated in the life of Jacob, who was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, as you well know. He was at the lowest point in his life. He was at the very, very lowest point, the ditch of his life. Joseph had been sold into slavery. He thought he was dead. But Joseph had been sold into slavery. Reuben had been disgraced, if you know what happened with Reuben. Judah had been dishonored. Simeon and Levi had broken his heart. Dinah, his only daughter, had been sexually molested. His beloved wife, Rachel, was now dead and had laid her to rest. And now the family was starving. The whole clan was starving. And their lives were threatened. And the only way they could get food was to send Benjamin down. Because Joseph had said he didn't know Joseph was alive. He said, I will not sell you any grain unless I see this younger brother that you've promised is still alive. So now he's going to lose his favorite son, Benjamin. And this is what Jacob says as Benjamin's being summoned to appear before the ruler of Egypt. Jacob is an old and broken man, wept out these words in the Bible. He said, all these things, what I just described, all these things are against me. Genesis 42, verse 36. He's saying, everything that's happened in my life has been against me and against my family. God, where are you in my circumstances? Listen, Jacob couldn't have been more wrong at any point in his life than when he made that statement, all these things are against me. Because the truth of the matter is, all of those things were working for him. All of them were working for him. How wrong he was. These things and many others were secretly working to his and his posterity's good. Because if they remained in the land, they would starve to death and die. Because God brought a worldwide, at least a Mediterranean-wide famine. They had to go to Egypt. And as they go down to Egypt, and as the story proves, they were set aside in a part of Egypt. And those 70 people that went down from his family into Egypt grew to a a nation of millions. And then God miraculously delivered them from Pharaoh 400 years later. And they came into the land, the promised land. And all of that was because Jacob was saying, all these things are against me. No, God was working behind the scene to get them down into Egypt, to prosper them in every way so they would become a great nation that he would be able to bring and they would have their own land. God's plan is inclusive. All things. Now you, just like me, we're tempted to say, come on, this is for my good. It's for your spiritual good. And there's the supreme example of God turning all things, even evil, the most evil of things, to good, to the good of his children, is seen in the sacrificial death of his son. 
in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, God took the most absolute evil that Satan could devise and that men could put together the most absolute evil that could ever be imagined the crucifixion of the Son of God, putting to death the Son of God, and he turned it into the greatest conceivable blessing that nobody could have ever imagined, and that is the salvation, the redemption of all who will believe. The worst of evil, by God's sovereign control, becomes the greatest blessing that could ever be conceived. So Romans 8.28 is a wonderful, wonderful verse. These verses we've been looking at are verses that we hang on to. We meditate. We cling to them. We rehearse them over in our mind. When it doesn't seem like they're true, they are true. All the promises of God are yes and amen, the Bible says. They're great verities. And may they be so for us individually, personally. God's spiritual security program. Let's pray. Father, you've given us so many, many wonderful promises. And we do want to memorize them. We do want to meditate upon them. We want to own them. We want to personalize them because they carry us through. And this is one of them, Lord, your promise to secure our salvation, and to secure us all the way until we breathe our last breath and we step into your presence. So thank you for this verse. Thank you for those of us who know you, where you're called, we love you. And Lord, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, they're not the elect of God. They're not called. They haven't responded to the truth. May today be the day that they act upon other promises and become saved. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.